This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, everyone. So we are back, and it's August 21st, 2019. I'm highlighting this date because just yesterday was the actual 400th anniversary of the first documented Africans to land here in Virginia. There have been a lot of conversations and a lot of events going on, and I encourage everyone to follow the 1619 Project. That's out with New York Times. They've got a podcast and writing. So this is a chance to dive in to the stories, to Angela, and to really keep this history and conversation going. But I'm really excited for our show today, Kat. And why don't we go ahead and just jump right on in to the news that we should probably use. And I'll go first. The news came out this past weekend that Planned Parenthood is pulling out of the Title X funding. And a lot of people may not be familiar, but the Trump administration has changed the mandate and basically put a gag rule on providers that if they are accepting this funding, that they can no longer refer patients for abortions and talk about abortions. And because Planned Parenthood serves about 40% of the 4 million low-income men, women, non-binary people that the Title X family funding would serve, this now puts them in a real position. But I know a lot of the abortion funds, a lot of the providers have been preparing for this for some time because they saw this coming. He told us, they told us. So this is really when we stand with black women and stand because we know that the majority of women that are receiving and seeking out these abortions are women of color. So shout out to Planned Parenthood as they make this really planned move. And my second piece of news is that Eric Garner's murderer was finally fired from the New York City Police Department. It only took five years. At least it wasn't 400, I guess. But um, justice has been served. And um, it's sad that we have to celebrate that, but to have seen his family, his daughters, one that passed in this fight, in this battle, and to see the survivors, not just the entire community, we're all surviving this tragedy. So yeah, what you got going on, Kat? So interesting thing came up, the Virginia pilot removed comments from its website. Huh. And as somebody who I know has experienced (laughs) a lot of internet trolling, I have a lot of big thoughts on that. I mean, they tell you, don't read the comments on any circumstances. And the editorial, they were really um, vague about why they did it. Just said that it's done. It's over with. Huh. Yeah. So could be productive. Could be productive. Right. Because it it does. It gives those RTD comments, man. My God. I mean, we are having a lot of conversations about Twitter and how to regulate white supremacy. So perhaps this was a move to do that. I don't know. It's all speculation, but it is. But that would be my thought, just seeing how those comments are used. Right. And who's doing the commenting. Yeah. Well, we're really excited to bring the show to you today because we are really attempting to amplify an event that's happening this Saturday, August 24th at 1 p.m. Hosted by Black Voters Matter, ACLU Virginia, and Rise for Youth, and hosted by yours truly. Let's jump right into this interview. 
are here with our education panel for the day right before school returns back in session. I know a few schools in the region have already started back, but mostly in our region, they are headed back after Labor Day. So we have gathered this panel together and I'm really excited for them to introduce themselves. We'll start right here to my left. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Candace Lucas and I am a licensed educator administrator with the Virginia Department of Education. My specialization or my endorsements are in special education and educational supervision. Um, I'm, I've taught in all the environments that you can imagine, prison, public school, private school. In addition, I am an advocate, an advocate and also a mom. I have to throw that in. But I'm an advocate that seeks to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline as well as what we call the retaliation triangle that fuels the school-to-prison pipeline. My focus primarily is for underserved communities and underrepresented communities. I don't like to say at risk because the the connotation of at risk is inappropriate. But I work with those families to empower them under federal regulations to dismantle the white oppression, white oppression or white supremacy themselves. Mm. Presently, I am a candidate for Henrico County School Board in the Barina District. I seek to be the first woman of color on the board in their history. Wow. Which is kind of scary and exciting at the same time. In Henrico County, they've never had a black woman or a woman of color on the school board that is accurate that is accurate so they they've had a woman of color run (laughs) but they've never had a woman of color on the school board and my purpose in my purpose in doing in running because it's not something that I feel like I really wanted to do it's something that I needed to do is to really reframe and promote what women of color can be and should be in the decision-making process of one of the biggest systems in our nation, which is the academic system. We have have to have a say. Unfortunately, the public school system is represented by 89% white female. If you go into an elementary school, middle school, high school, you're not going to see many educators that look like me. And not because we're not there, is it because the environment is not conducive to our participation and activation and act, activity in that environment. We're not, we're not welcome there. And that's hard for people to realize and understand. But if educators and administrators of color are not welcome in the public education system, think about our children, how they feel. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to dismantle all of that. I also am working on a new uh, model called the participatory model, which will be presented nationally regarding in Baltimore in March. The participatory advocacy model follows the participatory defense model, where in, in environments and communities of color where they do not have access and resources to secure legal services because it, lawyers are expensive. What we find is that a majority of the individuals that are exonerated that are convicted wrongfully, they employ the community and the community's resources. That might be mama, daddy. We all go to the law library and research the issue, write the motions, support the family. Well, we're adopting that model in participatory advocacy where we're actually insulating our families that are experiencing academic injustice and we're walking them through the process and showing up in due process complaints with them and showing up in federal court with them to fight for their rights as well as equipping them to write their own motions. How powerful is that? Wow. So well, that's a handful. Sorry. <laughs> Candace Lucas, everybody, welcome to Race Capital. All right. Thank you. Thank all you. the snaps, all the snaps. Up next. Hi, good morning. I'm Steph, Dr. Stephanie O'Dara. I am a social worker by trade. I worked in Richmond Public Schools. I've also done some child welfare work, the State Department of Social Services, and now I work in academia and higher ed. Very nice. What kind of work, studies, and research was, is your doctorate in? 
So uh, my doctorate is in educational leadership, and I did my dissertation work on anti-racist pedagogy. Mm. So diversity, equity, inclusion is my background, my teaching, my research interests, and the work that I do now basically is collecting, analyzing uh, educational equity data mm. and going and talking to academic administrators from local community and four-year institutions and talking about making process and policy changes to make the school experience more equitable for their students that are the most marginalized and most impacted. So not just degree attainment, but also workforce participation, because one of the most significant challenges is that a lot of our folks, in particular black folks, are maybe graduating with degrees, particularly black women, Mm -hmm. but we're not, we don't have access to jobs that pay a living wage, and we're not Social mobility is not something that is being significantly impacted by degree attainment. So that is also a part of educational equity is not just academic achievement. It's not just degree attainment. It's also your ability to navigate through life and have that degree actually have impact to your ability to live, how long you're going to live, how you live, access to housing, all those things is all interconnected. So that's why I feel like I still very much am a social worker, (laughs) even in academic spaces. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned that you really talk about those that are most marginalized and impacted in in education. And what do those students usually look like? They a lot of them are first generation students. So they are it's their first time, you know, being um, in a higher education system. So they don't have anyone that kind of help them understand cost of books, registration, just simple things like that, managing your schedule, just things like that. And those type of situation snowball and it becomes more challenging for them to be able to succeed. There's also a lot of oftentimes shame associated with that. So they're not as willing to say that they need help uh, because they're just trying to prove that they belong to be in the space. And a lot of times they receive either direct or indirect messages that they shouldn't be there. So there's a lot of uh, issues that come up with mental health and things like that and stressors because you're in an environment that wasn't designed for you to be successful and you're pushing against that every day in order to have some type of impact on your life. Wow. And so I just feel that there's a lot of things that institutions can do to remove those barriers that don't have to exist. A lot of the things that present significant barriers to students are just processed. They're just because that's the way we do it. It's right. not student-centered, informed in any way. And it creates situations where a lot of students stop out and they're not in school anymore. Right. And that is a significant crisis, particularly that we are tackling in the Richmond region is this growing some college no degree population that has all the debt of higher ed, but does not have any of the economic impact or access that comes with having a degree. Wow. So you fall further and further behind. Right. And you were talking about that feeling of belonging and being within an institution where, yes, you're invited, but maybe you're not welcomed. Uh, And it reminds me a lot of what Candace just mentioned about black women working in the school system and Henrico specifically, especially when we can't see that that representation isn't there for us to notice and how that trickles down to our students. Right. And hearing about first generation students coming in, I'm sure working with the school systems locally, you also see the bridge that happens while they're in grade school before they even get to you in academia, you know, in higher ed, I mean. Absolutely. I think one of the most challenging things in how this compounds is that a lot of times the experiences that the students are having 
in terms of belonging and access. So are the folks that are working in those spaces having. So I can have the exact same parallel conversation with black women who work in academia or women of color that work in academia or other marginalized groups that we're all having parallel experiences while also working on behalf of students who are also in those spaces. And there's all sorts of models that talk about this and grit and persistence and collective affiliation. And these are the things we talk about because we know that's what create success or pathways to success for students but all of those things translate to the experience of the employees as well so you have people that are also being traumatized by a system that they're at the same time trying to dismantle awesome especially for someone new jumping in to teaching in a system that that's me (laughs) but what you all are all describing is this pipeline right that comes from students to teachers to faculty to elected officials just in these spaces and finally we have james braxton here welcome Good morning. My name is James Braxton with Rise for Youth. I'm the Strategic Engagement Director. I also represent the Virginia Action Network, which is under the National Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. And I'm the founder of the Co-Parenting Empowerment Project, which is a strengthening families initiative focused on strengthening co-parents and, and bringing back the family structure. Today, I'm here to represent Rise for Youth, which stands for Reinvest in Supportive Environments. We believe prisons don't work for young people. We advocate for the closure of juvenile prisons and for that money to go back into the communities kids are coming from so that we can support more prevention, more intervention, but um, more so build community dependency. So it is our own community and our own neighbors that are uplifting and strengthening our families. And so today I'm going to promote our Schools Not Jails event, which we'd love for everyone to come to August 24th at Chesterfield Library, because we're talking about how all of these systems impact pushing young people into the system, including the system in which our own families and neighbors and community are programmed to do. Because when we think about a young person committing harm, you know, most times you see adults and and parents and family members thinking that the way to correct their behavior is to send them to jail and lock them up. So you see parents and neighbors where it used to be, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. We're not snatching our kids up no more, you know, because we're afraid of getting locked up or leading to gunfire, so on and so forth. So we've been taught to rely on the system. And the system um, that we've seen is, you know, sending our black kids, especially into the school to prison pipeline at at a dispersion rate. So I represent, like, when in spaces like this, we talk about systems, especially the education system. I speak from the, the perspective of a credible messenger. Like, I was one of the young people that we're advocating for. And although I didn't grow up in Richmond, um, Chesterfield schools, anything like that, I, I know the difference in the systems growing up in Hampton. And so growing up in an impacted area and then my parents getting divorced, uh, moving to a different part of town, which was York County, you know, that was the part of town we would consider Chesterfield here versus, like, Southside or something. So when I got there, I was in, you know, elementary school, and I just didn't fit in like I didn't feel like I fit in with the kids the environment the teachers didn't understand me the the trauma and the you know the experiences I got you know fighting every day and so on and so forth like I just couldn't relate so you know a lot of times my aggression was met with force or met with the how we define you know public safety or how we define you know discipline and I just didn't feel like I got the right support and right help so I want to you know I want to support young people by being the example of transformation but also you know breaking down these systems that were that were set up to keep our young uh, especially African-American kids, underperforming and underknowledgeable. So before you all continue with your expertise and talking about different regions, I want to give some numbers and stats about what's happening right here in our Commonwealth, is that the national rate of referrals to law enforcement agencies was six students for every thousand pupils, with 19 states surpassing that rate, including Virginia. Virginia had about 16 referrals for every 1,000 students versus the six. That's the national average. 
about 26% of all students referred to law enforcement nationally were special needs kids. And that's something I, I really want Candace to talk about locally and what that looks like here in our RVA region. In most states, Black and Latino kids were referred in percentages that were disproportionate to their enrollment numbers. Falling Creek Middle School right here in Chesterfield had a referral rate of 228 kids per 1,000. Remembering that the national rate is six, Falling Creek had 228 per 1,000. This is 39 times the national rate. More than half of the 3,538 complaints police filed over three years in Chesterfield were for simple assaults or disorderly conduct. And what does that really look like in a classroom? What does disorderly conduct look like in a classroom? What does simple assault look like from our kids? So let's talk a little bit about, everyone's talked about the systems, right? But these systems are very much enmeshed and working together as designed, the education system and the prison system. Candace. Talk to us, you were giving us some some real before we got on the mic and started recording about some other stats in Henrico. Can you share a little bit about Henrico's past, right? If a lot of folks will remember, friend to the show, Ravi Perry, who's now a professor over at Howard, a few years back was invited to talk about diversity, equity, and he showed a video that talked about privilege, basically at Glen Allen High School. And that video actually ended up being banned And when you watch the video, you realize how far we still need to come in our Henrico school systems, in our our high school spaces, that this video was banned by the messages that it was sending and that this school is still very much working in line with white supremacy. And that's just one example of Henrico. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening in Henrico. (laughs) What's been going on since its inception. Sure. (laughs) 1619 when it was Henrico's. Let's talk about the public school system as a whole, okay, okay, from pre-K on. Under the public school system, it was never intended to provide educational services for diversity, for diverse masses. The public school system was created under the father of, of public education, Horace Mann, back in the 1800s for the purpose of indoctrinating individuals, specifically white children and to teach them to be workers and comply with uh, societal norms. So when we fast forward to the inclusion of others, and that's what I call us, others, that's what they call us, individuals with disabilities, individuals of color, individuals that do not have economic access, then we basically impose ourselves into a system that was never built for us Mm -hmm. and is not willing to change for us unless we require that change. So let's let's drill down to Henrico County. ProPublica's website, which is a website that I use a great deal to uh, access details, their website is called the Miseducation of... Education. That's the name of the website that provides enormous data regarding what's going on in all districts throughout the nation. And it states that Henrico, even though we have 36 percent students, students of color that make up the student population, those students make up 70 percent of the out of school suspensions. Oh, my God. I want to let that marinate. And that's a 2018 number. So when we look at what happened with, you just read the stats from the Center for Public Integrity, and that goes all the way back to 2012 that they've been monitoring. And I need to be very clear and specific that this data is self-reported. Right. (laughs) Right. Okay, that's like me completing a test and grading my test. Okay, this data is self-reported. So if they're reporting this data and it's bad, the truth is even worse. Hello. 
Okay, that's the reality. And I, ha I I've already always raised this issue that I have an issue with us having it, uh, individuals who oppress report on their oppression. Okay, but that's the way the system is set up right now. Students with disabilities and students with disabilities of color are targeted by the school to prison, pi the preschool to prison pipeline, because you have to remember children in Henrico County as early as four are being expelled and removed from school because of the conspiracy, and I must call it a conspiracy. It is a criminal conspiracy of crimes against children of color. It's a conspiracy to, between big law, corporate America, corporate law firms such as the Reed Smith Law Firm and uh, Sands Anderson that benefit from the school to prison pipeline that also make contributions to our elected officials. We need to be clear about that. They get donations from these law firms that they state they're trying to dismantle when they state they're trying to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. Big Law and Big Ed, which is the Virginia Department of Education, and the local school divisions, they conspire to funnel our children into the preschool to prison pipeline. It is intentional. It is intentional. And I need to make that clear. It's intentional because when our kids cannot read by the third grade, okay, they're targeted. It, that's real. Because from pre-K to third grade, you learn to read. From third grade on, you read to learn. So if you miss that read, that learn to read piece, you're always behind. And we've been fighting in Henrico County for fundamental rights. My daughter who's 26 now, I had to fight for her to obtain access to advanced courses at Verina High School mm -hmm. because they didn't have them. And they told me if I wanted her to have access to AP courses, take her to drive her over to Godwin. Oh. And that was probably not the best thing to tell me <laughs> because I show up and I go to board meetings. And, and the thing is that when, when we have a system that says that you're not entitled to what my child is entitled to, and we have a system that says you don't belong here, mm. but we want you here because we need you for number purposes, right. for, for uh, federal funding and state funding, but we're not going to give you the money, then there's a problem. That's what we're really fighting. Even though race, uh, white supremacy is the model and white supremacy is a motivator, capitalism is the greater motivator. Hello. Because it is profitable to oppress marginalized groups because once again, Henrico County, for instance, received $1.3 million in Medicaid funds. They didn't invest that money back in children with disabilities that were the reason for the reimbursement. They created jobs and gave salaries to people. Mm. So when we analyze and follow the money, which I do, right. <laughs> I analyze, I've analyzed the budgets of Henrico, Chesterfield, and Richmond. We understand that they're paying, Henrico, for instance, paid the Reed Smith Law Firm $700,000 in three months to deny children one child with rights to under IDEA or special education rights. And that is alarming to me because that's $700,000 that could have been used to provide services to how many children? Right. $700,000 that could have been used to hire uh, uh, at least 10 teachers. Yeah. At least 10 counselors. Counselors, right. Okay, at least 30 mentors. Right. Tell us the stat about preschoolers that are being put out of school. The last stat self-reported stat that we had from Henrico County was that from the U.S. Department of Education was that preschoolers that are suspended, 100% of them are African-American. And we when we confronted the Virginia Department of Education, who is responsible for enforcing equity mm -hmm. in our in our public schools, they t they asked us, how did we get that information? I'm like, we researched it. Right. <laughs> you know, we researched it. A hundred percent of the children that are three, four, and five that are not in public school yet, a uh, kindergarten yet, are black males that are suspended. They're not even developmentally capable 
how are you suspending a four-year-old right i'll tell you what i'll tell you the right reasons okay one because they wouldn't comply defiance is the biggest issue quote unquote defiance you didn't do what i told you to do Mm -hmm. disorderly conduct disorderly conduct what does that look like that's such an ambiguous uh, term and the thing is that disorderly conduct defiance they're all subjective Mm -hmm. they're all subjective right yeah, how does that even fit in with developmental milestones for that age range? Right. Because you have to assess for school readiness. You have to orient the child to the environment. So how can you teach those things while penalizing them and holding them against it? That That's insane. Yeah. And knowing how we already see black males mm-hmm. in our environment at four years old, we're seeing young black boys as aggressive and disorderly and the simple assault piece sexual assault we had one four-year-old charged with sexual assault as well because he referred to another little boy's wee wee (laughs) so they're they're uh uh, they're uh adultifying and criminalizing and demonizing our children Yeah. yeah 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 i was just thinking the same thing that the criminalization of black boys in particular in that though you are three and four and five you're seen as regarded as treated as a grown person and you don't you don't get the luxury or the privilege of being a child i know rise talks a lot about money right and reallocating of funds what are some of the themes and recommendations you all are talking about of how to reallocate the funds that we need to what Candace was really talking about to supporting the schools and what are you all's talking points really with these school systems coming from a rise lens a couple of different ways, like we talk about intersecting systems, there are also intersecting resources that sometimes we don't look at. So there's the component of young people in the schools that even in their community may commit harm. If it's harm that causes them to be removed from the home, they go somewhere. You know, they have to go somewhere. And we know that from the transformation of the juvenile justice system, the punitive system and the jails model, the prison model hasn't worked. So they're closed. They closed Beaumont in 2016 and closed on Bonaire. And they're looking to build two more facilities, 196 bed in Central Virginia, 160 bed in Hampton Roads. And so... Until crime is abolished and we stop young people from committing crime when we deal with the real root causes, they got to go somewhere, right? But if if that place is designed to uplift and support the neighborhood, the community that the young people are coming from, then it can attach itself to the school system where the young person is located in poor state resources if used strategically because, you know, you're now engaging the community, you're engaging families that are system involved, that are involved in all these systems and bringing those components together so that we're creating an ecosystem of support rather than, you know, if there's good programs going on all the way over here, but the trauma is happening over here with the kids, whatever you're doing over here is not going to matter because they're not getting it over here. I mean, I think that having the conversation about just different spaces and different systems, as well as just how they're funded and how they have to be resourced. And I love that, James, you talked a little bit earlier about this term of public safety and what that means and who we keep in who's safe and who's the danger, right, that we have to be safe from. I know in Chesterfield, the safety task force proposed more officers in Chesterfield County last year. Last That was a black man, Dr. Dr. John Gordon, right, chief of schools, proposed that, and thank God the chief, uh, Chief Cat, said no. Right. The police chief <laughs> the police said, no said no when a black man who is the head of the school division requested more police in the schools. 
It's kind of like Duncan, a head of housing and Richmond Redevelopment Authority, suggesting to just displace all the black people with housing. But you can cut that out later, Kat. Do I have to? You don't. <laughs> That's the thing, too. Like, a lot of people are ill-advised and uninformed. The same people that are making these school policies and, and are responsible for creating solutions, they're un- uninformed because they don't have the people at the table, you know, drafting and, and, and brainstorming these, these ideas that have been a part. Like, say, for instance, we're talking about gun violence. I can't, we can't talk about gun violence unless somebody here has actually picked up a gun and shot somebody. It wouldn't make sense unless you knew what the contributing factors were for me for doing that. Right. So a lot of times, you know, these school policies and which is the language that drives young people out, they're able to, you know, teachers or administrators or whoever that wants to single young people out are able to use the language against young people. And if it's a young person is having a, a breakdown and it's clear that it's mental, but because of their behavior, they can use the definition of disobedience or insubordination to to call security or call the SRO and now that young person is getting a charge and going to jail. It's, right. You know the language. They, you know, we got to control it. And even the mental health world, like in that disruptive disorder, I can't remember. Oppositional the, defiance. Oppositional defiance. It's, it's really just ways to label our kids and so that they can't have these special labels to target them easier, right? Of who doesn't get funded, who doesn't get the accommodations, what classroom they're sitting in, who to call when they act up, right? Not the counselor. Call the police. Call, call the police. And just continue to talk about funding. We also see that this year, Governor Northam announced that there'll be $3.4 million in grants for more school resources, resource officers here in the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. So we are funding the police in our school systems at the same time of saying that we are dismantling the pipeline. It seems like we're like the main funder. Absolutely. And fortifying the pipeline. And, 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 And we have to be very clear. Systemically, we're giving giving individuals illegitimate seat at the decision-making table of our kids that do not belong there. It's an illegitimate seat. Police do not belong there. Litigators, lawyers do not belong there. Our families belong there. Right. And they not. it's an illegitimate seat at the table. And so it's not that they're they're not wanting us there. They don't, they don't want us there. And they're bringing the wrong people to the table intentionally because the goal is to deny services and deny money. Of course. And we see that when we talk about white supremacy, everyone, we're really talking about the behaviors, the patterns, the tools that white supremacy, that system has used for generations now. And exactly what Candace is talking about is that same system of that we have to look and recognize that who's at the table matters. And we're seeing that on a national stage right now with Trump. Every department that he wants to just blow up, he puts someone there that actually hates that population, right? Our school, our education, Betsy DeVoe, she actually wants to defund public education. So that's who they're going to put at the table. Ralph Northam, they don't care about clean energy. They want Dominion. So they put Dominion people on the board for our air safety, right? These are strategies that work in all different systems, not just education and not just in the prison system. So when we're talking about white supremacy, we are talking about another system that is how we are rooted, how we raised, and it's just what we know, right? And a lot of folks that don't realize that they're contributing and walking in this system or using the language or calling the police on their neighbor when it should be the village, it's just what we know. And if we don't ever hear anything different, we don't even realize it, right? And so it's important to bring people 
<laughs> for someone to disrupt it, bring attention, stop folks, and bring the right people to the table, right? And, and it's also important to educate our communities because when we talk about the school to prison yeah. pipeline, one of the tactics that a lot of uh, prosecutors use is telling parents, if you take this plea, this won't end up on the child's record. Right. That is huge. And Henrico, uh, Board of Supervisor Nelson, just confronted the issue that Henrico has the most, the, the highest level of incarceration to the point where we're outsourcing incarcerating women. Okay, so that is a problem. And and we've confronted the Commonwealth attorney there. Why are you forcing children and poor families to take pleas with the fear of uh, being incarcerated when these children need services? I shouldn't have to go to the detention center to get counseling services. Wow. So that that is a huge piece. But once again, that's intentional. So when a poor family comes in and they go through, quote unquote, diversion, Mm -hmm. which is an illusion, Mm -hmm. because diversion means I'm just giving you a a longer path to get to the school to prison pipe. I'm diverting you. You just don't go straight there. It's a so we we really need to focus on that as well. And for our listeners who don't already know, can you explain the concept of diversion? Sure, sure. Diversion, if I can explain it the way they intend it, diversion basically is an effort to get a a conviction or a child a child to avoid a trial because well let me explain the process a child gets charged in school by a school resource officer okay they have to appear in court before they appear in court before a judge and that the the, in, the incident is tried they're given the option of going quote unquote and going to diversion where they quote unquote admit what they did and they're given community service or whatever they have that option but the charge is still pending over them and they still have a record and they're still in the system right. so that's the problem the issue is that we can't even have diversion as an we can't even have diversion as an option we need to find out why these issues are being criminalized period Right. And we had the Commonwealth attorneys that were running here in Richmond on the show a couple weeks ago. And that is something that we heard Colette say, which is like, well, are, are they willing to get help? Because if they are, then you can follow this very long path of fines and classes and time away from your job. And this is the diversion. But guess what? You're not going to jail. We're not incarcerating you. But it's still a whole an entire system that disrupts our lives. And it's the same thing that's happening with our kids. And then that puts it on our family. We have entire families now that are disrupted with this process, that families that can't go to that can't go to work because they're constantly just trying to advocate for their kids to not be put into another system of prison. They don't have access to these resources. So the only thing they can say is, well, if you admit to this, they can go to detention or get this counseling and then they'll actually get the help that they need. But you have to sign your name on the dotted line and and be the gateway. Our schools are now the gateway to the prison system. And I love that you all come from very different lenses right now of James doing the community work, Rise for Youth, just really trying to shut down youth prisons, the higher ed academia and diving into the the research and the systems of how we got here, truly of understanding that. And then Candace, you've been a an advocate for years. Many folks know you as the disruptor and now agitator. Agitator. Agitator, right? <laughs> Sorry, maybe I was projecting. Maybe that's what they call me. (laughs) Um, But to see you now step up and run for office, this is what people are always asking agitators to do, right? Well, stop making so much noise and do something. You are, you first of all, you have been doing it. I don't want to discredit that, but using their language, you are now stepping up and saying, "I'm, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to be the voice at that table now, but people have to be brave enough to put different folks at those tables, mm-hmm. right? And saying white supremacy and saying defunding police, 
to fund. I mean, that right that we talked about capitalism being the motivating driver, right? But and that's why it's so hard for us to move past the system of the prison world with the education world, because funding that prison, funding the people that get to make money off the prison system, they're also the ones that are in charge of our entire cities, of our municipalities. So they'll be losing money. How are we going to fix this, y'all? For me, I think that no, I mean, because yeah, honestly, yeah. that that's their weakness. They we know their self interest. Their self interest uh. is capital, right? So if we think like them, and if we take this away, then we'll replace it with this and make it. We'll make you a hero. We'll make you, you know, whatever, because we know they play into that. They want right. to be the star of the show. They want their name out there. They want to make their money. So we almost have to propose something to replace that with, because we're, it's not going to be. We've seen it time and time again. They don't care about the argument of little black kids going to jail. We've been fighting that fight for sixty years. They care about the money. We right. we that's their self interest, right. and the fact that we know it is our leverage. And so that's one of the things that that's one of the that's one of the areas in which we've been successful in stopping two juvenile prisons from being built is because we understood the self-interest of those that had to make the decision on the ground and we plugged away at that. And that's really what it's going to be. It's going to be about us understanding their self-interest and finding a way to replace that so they, they're not losing anything and they're the heroes for doing the right thing. You You're know? absolutely correct. Cause I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so in, in my world, I do want to come back to diversion because I have a lot of feelings, thoughts as a former school social worker and truancy was a large part of what I did which is one of the main pathways through the pipeline, truancy and special education, that's solidly in school social workers for it. So I would like to come back to that. But yep. in terms of the economic approach to this argument, if you will, because I totally agree that just going the empathetic route of what about the children does not work mm -hmm. because people are still out here struggling and dying every day and no one cares. At this point, I feel like we're desensitized to it. I hate to um, pull the Kanye, but they don't care about black people. They don't. 2005. <laughs> let's just go I don't back. know if they care about anybody at this point. <laughs> right. They really don't care about black people. Right. Um, but what has been helpful to me in making a case for doing better and doing right by people, you know, having an equitable, justice-informed approach, particularly in higher ed where people are less inclined to care. You know, if they are going to care about the children, they're going to be K-12. When you talk about post-secondary, it's like, I mean, they made it, right? I mean, you know, they good. Or if they not, then I really don't care. But making that economic case, I've had to look at social mobility and wealth distribution and, and talk about if you have populations of people that at every point in their life have been systematically pushed aside, blocked access. What do you think is going to happen throughout the region where you live when you grow old and retire? What do you think happens? Who do you think is going to be working at your nursing home? Who, what do you think is going to happen in terms of your personal safety if you just track the economic development and prosperity in your region? At some point, it begins to affect everyone. And so that has had to be a part of my conversation, particularly when I'm talking to institutions of higher education, but also the business community, which is totally tied into higher ed is making that case the the long case of what do you think happens over time to a group of people that have been systematically oppressed and blocked and removed access throughout their life and so i like to use that african proverb of that children that are not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth so at some point your village is going to be burnt down to feel the warmth so what do you think you need to do? Where do you think you need to intervene mm -hmm. so that there is space and opportunity for everyone? Because I'm sure you don't want to live in the purge in a couple of years. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so let's 
I just want to say that we are still dancing around white fragility, but this is the way to our liberation, apparently. Okay, these are the tools that we have learned and the patterns just to survive. Uh, Let's jump back to this diversion. I'd love to hear a little bit about your social work experience. So my so my my main beef or problem, particularly when I was in working in Richmond City Schools and a large part of my job related to truancy, because I was assigned to schools that had high truant populations, if you will. That's the way that they described it. So to me, it it is a direct campaign assault against poor people Mm -hmm. because truancy is a symptom of another problem, a larger problem. If a child is not coming to school, elementary, middle or high, in elementary school, the parent is criminalized and gone after. Failure to send petitions is what we would call them. And then typically in middle and high school, it would be a CHINS, Child in Need of Services. So the diversion efforts would be directed directly at the child. But oftentimes in working those cases, there was always something greater, some significant trauma, some loss, some need to work, something that was happening. That family was in crisis mode that was contributing to why that child wasn't coming to school, layered with not feeling like you belong, layered with mental health, layered with special education. Almost all of the students in cases that I had that I was working on for truancy were special education students. So again, you're thinking about the pipeline. It's right there. There is something being done where this group of children and families are not being served, but they've been identified as being the most in need of services. I do not understand how that happens. And then having to then have them be court involved, which takes time, energy, money, resources that they don't have. And so you're putting people in a position where you, if you have a job, you're oftentimes in one where you can't just miss work for the thousand meetings we need to have about why your child isn't coming to school. Because if your child's not coming to school, you're definitely going to come to 15 meetings about why your child's (laughs) not coming to school. Right. That makes perfect sense. And you're going to come to mediation at court and you're going to come to court hearings because all of that makes sense. Right. So now you have people, now you're in a position where you have warrants and show causes being put out against people that are just trying to survive and just trying to make it. And so that was a struggle for me. And I mean, well, I don't work there anymore. So there were times where, you know, there was a certain number of absences where we were supposed to file and I was just... Mm-mm. Yeah, we yeah. gonna. I, if I if that means that I need to beat the streets a little harder and spend more time in the community and go up to where your mama work and try to figure something out and try to figure out a way that we can give you the resources that you need. Sometimes it was just kids needed clothes, come on, or hygiene products, and they weren't coming to school because they didn't have clean clothes. Just things like that. Right. But the response or the expectation is that the school will file a criminal petition against you because you don't have basic needs. But the bigger piece about the whole truancy Virginia code is is, is antiquated. It's outdated. Yeah. We don't we no no longer children are not required to come to a school building to to learn anymore. There are children that need other means of education, which may include me going to a, a, a facility that provides vocational training as opposed to strictly academic training. So the Virginia code for truancy, which we've been we're advocating for it to be amended significantly mm-hmm. during this general assembly session, should not take all the power and tell the state if your child doesn't come to this building they're not being educated. Mm -hmm. It should not state that. The parents uh, should have more authority and support to educate their children, especially our parents that don't understand, okay, truancy doesn't mean that uh, you 
truancy means that you're being criminalized for your child not complying with the state. That's right. what it means. It doesn't mean that they're not they're being criminalized for your child not being educated. There's a difference. Right. Right. And so right. we need to really explore that because our children with disabilities may not be able to make it to school, like you said, or yes. their parents may not be able to, or the school may not be conducive to educating them. And what we find is that school divisions use truancy to force parents to send their, their children to placements that are not beneficial for them. Right. Absolutely. Right. I, I remember hearing conversations, well, if they won't go to school here, then they'll have to go to school in jail. Yeah. 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 Ooh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is such a great conversation. It's one that we're going to have to continue in our own community. And there is an opportunity to do that April 24th. You want to let the people know a little bit about what to expect from the event at 1 p.m. next Saturday. Yes, uh, we're going to have a great panel of Scott Miles, uh, who's the Chesterfield Commonwealth Attorney, Emma Clark, who's Chesterfield Teacher and Public Education Activist, Kimba Smith, ACLU State Advocacy Campaign Director, and myself. And we're going to talk about, uh, or we're going to follow up from this conversation, what we're having today about the school system, school to prison pipeline, and what we're going to do about it and, and really go beyond the words and how we're going to take action, how we're going to change policy and legislation. So that's at 1 p.m. Saturday, August 24th at the Central Library on 7051 Lucy Core Boulevard in Chesterfield. Great. And that is being brought to all of us by Rise for Youth, ACLU, and Black Voters Matter. Thanks for so much for that. So before I let you all go, we're going to jump right into What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment of the show where we invite our guests to describe the privilege that they carry and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. James, you want to go first? This is a good one. So mine is ironic because my privilege is supposed to be my weakness, which is being a black man. Mm. And so the thing about white supremacy is it's not uh, mistake proof. And there's gaps in it. And one of those gaps is greed. Mm. And so because of greed, you know, they want to own everything, want to own property, this, that, and the third until they own the wrong, the wrong thing they can't handle. And so back in 2005, I was arrested for attempted robbery, some gun charges. I was on trial for two years. I was exposed to an opportunity, changed my life. And then that took me into property management because, you know, by that point, I believed I can do anything. And I was trying to get out of my mom's house because after I got out of jail, um, that's where I was living to get back on my feet. And so I said to myself, like, you know, how am I going to get out of here? How am I going to get my own place? Uh, I don't have the credit. I don't have the money. And so can't beat them joint them. Did some research. I wanted to get into property management. I said that I was going to start as a leasing agent, work my way up to property manager. And so I looked through the phone book, called every apartment complex in the city, Newport News and Hampton, got an interview. And my mindset was, you know, I'm not walking out of here without this job. So although I applied as a leasing agent, they hired me as a property manager, just, you know, for various reasons, one of which is how I presented myself, but two, they had a property that that property management company was known as Slumlords. They were very white supremacy uh, led, and they had a property that they couldn't handle, which was an urban community. It was you know Mexican and Black War. It was a drug infestation, bed bug infestation. They couldn't collect money. It was a hundred thousand dollars a you know un, you know uh, just debt unpaid. So them looking at me as their token black man that they can hire to put mm. in there and run the property, they didn't account for how that was going to empower me right. to learn the system, learn the game. And then now I'm teaching that back to the same brothers that I go back and mentor so that they can do the same thing and learn property management and learn the skill set and take it on with them. So I use that to, to empower. Dang, yep. Get the tools, teach, build a different pipeline. Stephanie? So I would say my privilege being a cisgendered black female uh, with decent amount of education and doctor, <laughs> doctor, decent amount of education. And generally, being unassuming is that I can be in a lot of these 
spaces and places. I don't know if you all have seen the new A Black Lady Sketch Show and that segment about like the regular, smegular looking woman that's invisible. That was like affirming. <laughs> Story of my life. But I use that as a privilege because there are a lot of times I'm in spaces and places and there's some opportunities, some advantages of being invisible. Right. Is because you have an idea, you're able to sit back, watch, and assess, and then plan, mm-hmm. and and then definitely be able to 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 lead conversations based on what people just don't remember that they said in front of you or <laughs> didn't realize that you were in the room. So there are a lot of times I like to describe myself as having a backdoor sneak approach or even like think bombs or I'll say something and oftentimes people come back to me and say, you know, I didn't get it in the moment when you said that, but I want us to come back to this because I think there is something we can do differently. And I'm like, yes. And definitely that's been my approach to education and teaching, particularly social work students. Like I want to set you on fire so that when you leave here and you go into different places of work all over the world, that you have this passion for justice and for people. And that's going to have ripple effects. Mm -hmm. That's certainly been my my approach. I love it. More pipeline building and also taking what's supposed to be seen as your challenge or weakness and making it your strength for strategy. Very nice. Okay, well, my privilege is I was trained in Egypt (laughs) in the household of the Pharaoh. And I specifically state that from the Passover of child of a pastor, y'all. I was trained in education, strictly how to implement education practices, how to provide instruction, how to engage with parents. They taught me everything I know I need to know to fight them. That, they taught me everything I need to know. VCU endorsed as an administrative, uh, you know, educator in knowing how systems work, knowing how to analyze budgets, knowing what a curriculum should look like, knowing what culturally competent curriculum should look like, knowing how administrators are supposed to support our families, knowing what the school board is supposed to be doing, school law, school finance. My privilege is that I learned from the oppressor. Oh. Okay, and so they say that the master's tools would never be used to dismantle the master's house. I'm going to use them. Mm. Look. I'm going to use them. And so my privilege is when I walk into a room, when I walk into a board of education meeting, they have no idea. Now they know. But before they <laughs> Girl, didn't we know. all know what happens when you walk in a meeting. Before they did not. A lot of people, when I walk into advocacy situations or IEP meetings or situations all over the state, all over the nation, they don't know that I was trained by the oppressor. Right. And the oppressor thought that I was going to be able to be used for his purpose, but it didn't work out that way. So that's my privilege. And using it for your purpose versus his, which is what makes it different, the tools different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. We're going to have to wrap this up. I really enjoyed all of you all being here. Before we go, any last shout outs? I know we've got this Saturday coming up at one o'clock in Chesterfield, the library. Anything you want to say, Candace? Oh, November 5th. Make sure you vote for me. I'll be the first woman of color on Henrico School Board. And I promise you, I don't yes. change. I don't, I don't change. change. I, won't ch- I won't become brand new. <laughs> Dr. Odera? I'm just out here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to supporting both of you all. There you go. (laughs) Stay out there because we need you out there. Thanks so much, y'all.
schools, not jails. And I really appreciate, especially James, telling his personal story about that and the fact that he's now working in this field, right? So he can bring that experience as well as the professional lens, which is the exact type of intersecting service worker, ally, advocate that we need. I really Uh, appreciated what he said about being, I think the term he used was a credible messenger. Oh, yeah. And that was his lived experience. So at the end of the day, you really don't know something until you have somebody who's lived that experience. And I think as an organization, props to Rise for having somebody like that on staff. Right. They're doing a lot of things right with their modeling. And everywhere I go, including just regular community conversations, people are always like, how can I support? How can I support? And yesterday I I remember saying something that's like, well, find out who's not at the table and remember to reframe your idea of experts, the people that have lived it, not just studied it or made laws about it. And that's why I want to talk a little bit about what my privilege is. And I didn't get to do that in the interview, but my privilege with this particular conversation is that I was raised by a white teacher. My mom knew the inside game of how black children were looked upon and how they were treated because my mom taught in Richmond Public Schools and she could hear the narratives and she had also done the research. But from jump, when I went to Chesterfield County Schools, I remember thinking one time when I was younger, my mom is so crazy. No, my mom was actually just sticking up for me. She was she was at the school. She was talking to the teachers. She was st- she was showing them I was smart. I was intelligent. I didn't need to be in these types of classes. I could handle honors classes. I mean, from from the beginning. And so that really was my privilege is always seeing my mom, hearing my mom affirm me as a young brown child. The privilege that I have a white mom that is entitled enough to come up there and raise all hell and not be worried about how the system's going to look at her. So that's really my privilege of of being able to already know the no of the inside with the school systems to have also the exposure of growing up in the halls of Richmond Public Schools in the summer, on the weekends, not in the classrooms, but getting to know those teachers in those environments and being able to really compare what that's like at Chesterfield. But having the event this weekend in Chesterfield, aka Arrestafield, right? That's what we grow. That's why we know Chesterfield, let's be real. So when we're talking about schools, not jails, think about how that stereotype filters down to our children within our schools. It is a reminder to the schools, not jail program is this weekend. Starts at one o'clock and wrap up at three. And I am hosting the event, which I'm really excited to do. We're going to be at the Chesterfield County Public Library, 7051 Lucy Corp Boulevard, Chesterfield, Virginia, 23832. And this event is being brought to the community by Rise for Youth, Black Voters Matter, ACLU Virginia. And another big shout out to Rise for the way they're modeling. The way they are getting out the word for this event is they've been out knocking doors. They're going to not make sure that the people that don't have social media or aren't following on Instagram still have an opportunity to hear about this event. And they've been taking the speakers, the panelists. They've been asking questions. They've been gathering information so they cannot just knock on the door and say, hey, to come to our event. They're now making community relationships so they can keep them involved even after this Saturday. And that's how we dismantle the school to prison pipeline is by coming into community and making these spaces, our community spaces, run by us and for us. And 
we would be remiss if we didn't lift Candace Lucas and all the work that she's done and doing in Henrico and all across Virginia, truly. She's had some battles in the past that, again, you just can't relate to or understand unless you've been a black woman in those spaces. So also checking our lens and our frame to make sure when we're seeing these advocates out there working for us that you're not being the young girl Chelsea, like, oh, she out there acting crazy. No, no, no. These are our biggest heroes. These are our soldiers. These are our protectors that to protect and serve us. So thank you, Candace, for doing the work. Thank you, James, for doing the work. Dr. Stephanie O'Dare, another black woman, doctorate in these spaces, social worker, shout out to social workers. We have so many amazing people doing this work and now it's just time to come together and address the system and hold them accountable with their laws, with their funding. Remember where all the money is going. If it's going to law enforcement to give them power and authority, how are we really giving the schools, the education, the educators, our students the power? Follow the money. Well, that's really all I got this week, man. I'm excited to see everybody this weekend and catch y'all next week on Race Capital. I'm from the